Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. So this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, This is the Health, Medicine, and Bioscience Edition. My goal here, my job is to find the top-rated people in their fields. I've noticed that uh, that can be one in a hundred, one in a thousand, but uh, they're there. My job is to find them, not just the -the run-of-the-mill people. I think today I found another one, Professor David Mulligan. He's at Yale University. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, some of the medicinal aspects and um, clinical aspects of transplantation of organs, particularly the liver, and uh, some other topics with uh, AI surrounding uh, assessing and allocating organs. So, uh, David, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Thanks so much, Richard. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm doing well. Yeah. Well, tell me, what, why, uh, why transplantation? Why the focus there? What interests you about it? Well, you know, it's truly a field that embodies almost every aspect of healthcare, uh, taking care of people who failed um, and for whatever whatever the cause, many times the immune system, many times the succumbing to toxin, and, and the opportunity to try to use not only technical skills, really complicated surgery, but also a lot of medical skills to work with a healthcare provider uh, in every aspect, from nurses, with all kinds of uh, both space and heart, but also infection, uh, psychiatric, all kinds of things. It brings all of it together, all surrounded by one problem. Life. We have the honor, a gift, another person, a living or the gift of tragedy and turn it into a legacy, a tragic loss of gifts and help form that a second life. Right, right. Um, in the list of organs, which ones are most transplanted, do you know? Yes. Um, kidney transplants are by far common organs. We have the highest over 100,000 kidney are something that are more readily donated. You know, most of us are two kidneys. If someone off of uh, the other, the other uh, option to live. So when it comes to the highest volume. Of- okay. And how, how does liver stack up? Because that's, that's the focus of yours, right? There's more liver related symptoms or problems. Correct. Yeah, the the living donor liver trans my major area of academic, but the liver again is a very common problem and around the world that hepatitis is cause of advent breaks antiviral treat HIV try to control and eradicate seven. Now we have a lot of problems. Yato hepatitis, non-alcoholic fatty liver develops fatty liver as well as from alcohol cirrhosis and all the MPS and many other causes for unfortunate will get cirrhosis. Many of them go on to develop. The idea is to try to replace these liver as quickly as can to avoid the development, to avoid the progression. Yeah, I've heard that the liver can regenerate. So a liver transplant may not have to be an entire liver. And someone that has a liver maybe can take part of their liver and uh, use it as a transplant for someone without giving up their whole liver. Um, Yes, the liver, um, when the, the liver and the skin are two bodies that have the actually grow new cells, not just get larger and become uh, a larger organ because of swelling, they actually grow new cells, regenerate. And I wish all of our organs, but, but fortunately, the liver can make a part of the liver. As long as we don't take too much, as long as exactly the divide from parts of the blood vessels and bile ducts, um, brand new organ replacing 
uh, a patient would have, replace it with a part of a liver that grows normal, normally, and a miracle phenomenon. And in a donor, the where donor liver leave behind was fast, geologically. Yeah, that's amazing. What uh, I mean, are people studying the cell-to-cell signaling and the mechanism of uh, liver cell regeneration? Absolutely. The, um, the work that's gone direction to try to identify, to try to identify not only uh, the cell signaling pathway go on for that for for this hepatocyte growth factor uh, uh, production, which happens within within hours after resected. Uh, it makes it about two, but there's a lot of uh, immunology, you know, biology, cell biology uh, with this science. It's a, mir- it's a miracle application impacts. Of- Is there any need to culture liver cells? Um, before you do a resection and transplant to to speed it along or to use less of the liver to transplant? Well, there it, there's not a need to do any of that. However, you bring up a phenomenal um, point in that we have been trying to uh, develop livers and all organs for that matter. But liver is certainly the organ makes it in many ways. It has this profound capacity. We're trying to make livers uh, grow uh outside the body to be to be able to coalesce form all the special structure that a liver might to have in order to become functional new liver plant that back into a patient and organ so future the idea would be that someone could could scrape some buccal mucosa take take the mesenchymal cells stem cells grow a new liver uh with liver and not even immunologically different cells. Uh, but at this point, we have been a phenomenal, phenomenal work. It's going to Natty, Anna, any places in the world which growing organ, uh, both cells that generate liver uh, uh, hepatocytes from the functional, as well as the functional cells of the bile ducts. And they're able to grow and repopulate. And we already have been able to grow the bio uh, branched blood vessel. And so you start putting these structures together and putting the environment start to interact. We're going to someday may not be that far away, have the to actually regenerate human liver and use that. Yeah. When we do that, we should call it the Prometheus Foundation. Yeah. Okay. The, the vulture ate his liver every night. That's right. Sure did for giving fire from the gods to. Right. Um, what about the uh, immunosuppression that seems to be necessary with every transplant? Is it necessary with every transplant, regardless of what it is, or no? And is there any progress being made in that area? So um, there's there's a lot of progress that were over the uh, more suppression in the early days. Solid organ the goal was to have and survive the surge make it through, avoid infection, uh, avoid any complex, technical complex with the graft, thrombosin, clotting off, um, and not work, and, and or some kind of an immunologic reaction, reject uh, the organ, but have this uh, immunologic mechanologic uh, makeup in a barcode the rest of them. And what we've seen over time to, to develop a uh, systems induction suppression, early recognition um, system, the new protein of organ comes uh, is really, and then how we state of suppression without over suppressing, allowing infection to take on, in time allowing the um, uh, different immunologic mechanism have some type of a reaction to one another to such a state that develop we'd like to call tolerant so that our immune system actually over time adapt to organ and do not to recognize it as non-self but ideal self. There have been a lot of modifications transplants, bone marrow transplants with the organ transplants. There have been a lot of work, different kinds of antibody induction uh, along with um, 
calcineurin and other non-calcineurin suppression that um, can be used in lesser doses so that they don't carry the toxic side effects, be hard on the kidney, hard on the nervous system, cause, cause hard on the bone marrow. Try to use less but enough the job, and that's been what been working. Some of the medications now have very little side effects and are very powerful, delivered as little as once a month. Uh, through an IV, replace some of the medicine taking years twice a day, um, and it doesn't have the side effects of uh, uh, side effect uh, high high blood sugar, high blood pressure. Uh, they don't have those kinds of side effects, and so it's very promising uh, that we're getting have less toxic medicine, use less medicine, and hopefully have immunosuppression draw program and how to safely suppression long term. As you said at the beginning of the podcast, I think the ultimate goal will be able to use our own cells, even have to work about immunosuppression at all well there's a lot to be learned i'm sure from cancer because cancer seems to enact cell type specific immunosuppression and you know you can have pancreatic cancer that metastasizes to different organs it's in a completely different microenvironment. Yep. the cells still survive and proliferate and the rest of the person does not appear to be immune compromised so you know, if cancer can do it, maybe there's stuff to be learned there uh, where we can do such a thing. Absolutely. Any hints or are, are people looking at it with that eye? I think so. I mean, I, I think that a lot of the work that's gone in cancer therapy crossed over from a lot of, you know, biology cell uh, work, transplanted organs. And so all of it's gone uh, in concert was definitely in a lot of work. Not only directing novel therapy toward our PL1 antagonist, no, or very effective system in a way to recognize uh, the similarly, you know, how do we how do we protect cells from donor organs in a way incorporate as part of self and not just protect them, not uh, recognize. So there is a lot of work looking how that how those phenomena take place and how we uh, both sides both immunotherapy answer is well you mentioned weaning someone off immunosuppressants is that available yet or is that not uh, possible yeah. yes um actually there have been few trials um the largest university of pennsylvania and university of california uh, where they had um protocols taking stable patients who are out and trying to lessen amount of suppression steadily careful with organ biops with careful uh, blood get patients very little or no uh, medication whatsoever. We know that there are people out there able to tolerate their organs, no immunosuppression. We've known this because people have uh, accidentally stopped their medicine. People have stopped their medicine, paid for their medicine, uh, they care for supports. Uh, we will have not like the side effects. And unfortunately, right now, we still have a very well with that and won't. It's not just a matter of who's had the best post-operative course of rejection. Hmm. That doesn't do it. It's, it's actually much more common. People have lost their organ. It's been crazy. But but I think it's a definite goal to try to say is a possibility. If we can't get someone off in suppression, all can get them able to tolerate uh, um, tolerate a very small amount of suppression, say a dose once a week, uh, that would be far better than having to get twice a day. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. Um, any ideas on what the mechanism of a... It, it, so immune suppression itself, even if you're on a course of drugs, is it a common, common phenomenon where you can reduce the amount of the drug you're taking to suppress you over time? Is there any gain or loss of uh, response over time to a transplanted organ? Well, there, there certainly can be. You know, we, we moved from this, um, this notion 
of you know, antibody rejection is something that we think about developing early. Uh, and immune cells, like the most of our antibodies, these cells are printed that, that they're a recognized immunogen and they get reactive those same protein and produce antibodies. And so early on, the rejections that the after transplant um, that were very, very, and oftentimes loss, the hyper rejections, those were derived with. Um, now, we still see that, especially pediatric, we still see where uh, a recipient may expose certain protein uh, that are antibody suppression. But fortunately, small the T cells, uh, the T cell media rejections common. We have to those are one can arise early in the first three most of, but they can also arise and many times they get a viral infection, Burton develop a recognition, wake up to cause a cell need rejection, or they may forget their medicine and get too low a level of suppression, flare a rejection. So it is possible, and that's why we worry about just stopping doing well for five years transplant because they may have been great, but their body's ready to stop taking suppression altogether. They will form their cell. A meat rejection, which could be significant, we might not be uh, very. So I think that it's definite, uh, definite risk that we have with that. And over time, they can develop something that's a little beyond B cell meat rejection, and that's what we call a chronic. People that develop um, other types of mo uh, molecules. Sometimes it's complement activated, another coding system, and sometimes it's antibody meat, different route where they're looking anti. And you start to try to look at some of the immune system in those patients. We'll, we'll find that after several, it's usually after several years, we'll start to general inflammation starts to occur in the graft. And over time, inflammation starts to incite response that starts to cause the graft. And so we call it the chronic rejection. And and the treatment of that is very difficult, and sometimes ends up in the graft nodal function transfer. Has the um, <clears throat> has the microbiome of the liver been looked at? Because if you know if there is one, and patient A now gives their liver to patient B, now the microbiomes are mismatched and at odds too. So what's the dynamics of that? Well, now you're opening a very interesting discussion, and I, I, I wish that I could uh, tell you that I'm expert in a lot of this domain that very, um, we are learning a lot about how it involves our immune system in general and how it functions uh, with our entire gut. You know, the microbiome itself is superfluous throughout our, our GI tract, really throughout our body, and so there are uh, microbiota in liver and system and certainly uh, flowing colon intestine up through, through the liver. So there's definitely constant connection. I think that it's commonly uh, certain inflammatory bowel disease, colitis, much higher developing with those. I'm certain uh, much of balance known to have uh, in their microbiome involved. And we're still trying to learn it develops or as it develops ahead of causes. We don't know but, but there are some studies showing that control of this proved for value and probably liver damage. So I think that no question, the immune system is highly that we don't think about our mind often, probably homobiotics, all the turret, and of course our diet, uh, all, and that it's recover from uh, alt major alter. We probably are uh, suffering a lot of because we haven't microbiome checked. So I, I, I think you're onto something. You're definitely correct at how that microbiome of the whole GI tract as well as a whole body and certain as well and I think that probably part of our health problems that we have to general and I, yeah. and I have a good idea in the microbiome quite well. Yeah when when someone uh, undergoes a transplant does the donor 
gets antibiotics for their surgery and then the recipient gets them. Sure. And then as the effects been looked at, the timing of those two courses and the type of antibiotic given and maybe that modulates the success of the um, of the transplant or the immune response. You know, actually, I don't think people have looked at the choice of antibiotics and timing um, to have an impact actual graft outcome or immunologic cascade occurs with that. I know that um, they, they mostly, most of the focus has to do with uh, the timing, the breadth of antibiotic coverage, having to protect the infection or intra-abdominal infection, protecting infection occur with placing a line. So the idea is to prevent all these infections. The choices of antibiotics has all been kind of looked at as what, what can infection be possible without any side effects. I think that when you look at how does the how does the choice of antibiotics influence our microbiome? I don't think really focused on that as yet. And I think there are good questions that that do weren't focused because you're right. It very much could be altering the outcome of the surgery in a way that we haven't. Hmm. Okay, well, more to come in that area. Um, with your particular work and research, you know, I'm sorry I didn't even ask you what what are you researching in particular? So you know, there's there's. There are several things that we look at, and the things that we're doing here at Yale, aside from trying to develop some uh, technologies and techniques to do uh, transplants, uh, where we've implemented a robotic implantation program for for, uh, kidney transplant, especially patients who are very prone to getting infection problems uh, due to their size and girth. Uh, trying to support an incision in the lower abdomen that when you're obese has to be quite large. It's very susceptible to infected. And when they get infected post-op, it real impact on how their transplant works and how they feel. And, and by doing uh, minimally invasive surgery, by, by using a robot to actually do the vascular anastomosis, anastomosis of the ureter to the bladder, we're able to very quickly drop a kidney, small um, hand port in the upper abdomen deliver it in place that lower on um, the lower um, okay. right lower quadrant and where we would put the uh, kidney in the open and and sew it in under the vision have excellent outcome the program have as well mm, okay that's 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 kind of a new uh, program that some of the research that doing <clears throat> in the lab um, we have a we have a lab headed by uh, Greg and and our task has been to look at um, normal thermic and hypothermic of solid oil partner with UK and have been doing research looking in liver um, that are kept outside the body. They're taking organs right now that aren't plantation human organs. We're putting them that are pumping uh, blood through arteries and measuring the urine production flow from a kidney, the bowel production, the labs from a liver so that we can try to how these organs are functioning. And if the organs that not transplantable and therefore discarded, if there's a way that we can make them transplantable, which studies are now showing can happen in over 50% of them, we can then uh, we can then use organs that have not been before and put them on, bring them up and deliver a recipient or transplant. So that would help hundreds, um, if not thousands of patients. So that's a that's a really exciting and one of the unique areas putting those on studying, uh, studying whether they would work or not, but also trying to develop solutions, drug delivery, signal particle technology and other to try to improve the organ and actually resuscitate them beyond just determining could they be transplantable with perfusion on their own and better uh, and try to go forward. And so it's been a very, okay. and we've got a, a project right now. So the state of organ transplantation, you know, 
five years out, what do you see? And then maybe beyond that, you know, what's near term possible in clinical setting that could be used and what's further out? So I see a lot of transplantation. We've just, we're just going through organ allocation systems now um, where we're trying to share organs more broadly so that organs can get to patients, uh, so that the sickest patient can get the organs sooner and, and, that, and that they can get them regardless of where they happen to live. Share them in a system where organs recovered by organ recovery um, who are going to be more adept technology information to assess the organs recovered. The ones standard and, and good organs right off the get-go go straight to uh, wherever. And the ones that are uh, more uh, questionable or the ones that resuscitation will get delivered to various uh, centers where there's probably a consortium of uh, transplant LA labs that are working together uh, with the OPOs to try to resuscitate and rejuvenate and then subsequently deliver the patients their optimum. And so I see you know, five years from now, uh, less flying from transplant centers uh, to go out in the middle of the night to recover organ from donors and flying them back with all the risks occurred with uh, and negative uh, the negative impact that has on a transplant cells losing half their workforce through the night and next day they're, they're not very I see more uh, transplants are coming intake search uh, where they're where they're looking accepting organs they're evaluating uh, remotely and then accepting the organs when they're optimized and bringing this lining up so I see more transplants taking place like rotation Lear jets that are borrowed from or chartered from one and flying to six people pilots high and like that turning into box runs where the transportation is a multiple of different types of aircraft um, hmm. and transporting organs in boxes and getting them delivered once they've been optimized uh, uh, are assessing the organ for viability and better uh, before they get. So there's a lot of new, exciting things. Yeah. Or, uh, uh, just one question or two there. How long can an organ survive uh, without being transplanted to someone then? Can you actually improve the state of the organ before transplant? You mentioned a few things, but I didn't know that was possible. Yeah, well, that's the same thing. Um, I don't think I, I don't think any of us knew it was possible uh, a few years ago. I think that I think that what's exciting is that we can make organs better. Um, we can can in um, uh, organs that uh, that may not have too long uh, to uh, survive outside the body, and by putting them on. Uh, perfume do have the organs actually function better. And especially if we provide nutrition, provide any kind of uh, pharmacologics that might, uh, how the organ can, say, get rid of fat or uh, recover from, we try to do some uh, depleted mitochondria and do things that actually allow the organ to be better than it was from the donor and then get it to the recipient. Who knows, someday we may be able to adjust them in such a way that when the transplant, the immune system will be much more readily acceptable to this it won't require as much suppression in order to uh, do the transplant well one idea i mean i you know i'm in no position to test it but one idea i thought of is when you uh, remove an organ you know what if you treat the organ with maybe a small amount of antibiotic to get rid of its microbial attachment to uh, give it a clean slate so that when it's put into someone new there's no microbiome associated with it that maybe would compete with the new person even with antibiotics being given in. well and that you know and, and and that's a great question and certainly something that uh looked at because what we don't know is are there 
are there microbiomes that we'd like to that that have a good impact and that are that are say pleasant example and trans transplanted into a patient may have been and uh, and others that are more toxic um, so it may be that we don't want to wipe out all of it we want to wipe out the bad guys the good guys and repopulate more more of the the good agent or positive you know in our symbiosis we go forward and so I think you're right we've got a lot to learn in that don't well very good uh, it's been a great call I learned a lot of stuff and I think it's fascinating so I, I see why you're interested in this area what's the um the best way for people to learn more you know read papers that you're working on or check out uh, your work well uh well richard we we've got so much to uh, do i think i think most important thing is they can go on the on the yale university website if they want to learn about our research and and just uh search transplantation and they'll get right into a lot of the active and learn more. I'd say that if they're interested in organ donation and transplantation, the go right to UNOS uh, website, UNOS.org, and learn all about amazing things that are happening. And every year for the past years, with a significant number of organ donated and transplanted, uh, both in deceased donor and in, uh, last year with over 7,400 living donors, over almost 40,000 is huge percent uh, uh, these donors. So we're, we're seeing more and more uh, uh, organ transplantation, and it's a lot to learn. And there's so many uh, about different organs. Didn't talk really about heart and lung or intestinal transplants. They're all fascinating and all life-saving. Um, it's just an honor to be working in a field like this, knowing that every year there's so much to know and how we can directly help patients by learning. Yeah, excellent. Well, David, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate thank, it. Thanks, Richard. It's been a real pleasure. I, I certainly appreciate the opportunity to share this. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.